on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. I love the idea that you serve in the way that feeds you most, right? So my boon is my story, but not in the way I thought it was. I thought my story was, what a great hero, how cool is Eamon? Mm -hmm. And that's the boon. That's not the boon. The boon is the humor. Mm. The boon is the play and the fun. Mm -hmm. The boon is telling my story with all of these colorful little pieces. I'm a colorful fucking dude. <laughs> True story. I'm colorful. I'm in, I'm like an interesting bird to look at. Mm. And if I say this is masculinity and I have done the thing and I have gone away and I have learned and now you will know what to do. Fuck me for that. Mm. No one wants to hear that. What does it mean to be a man today? The old archetypes of masculinity are dissolving and the new ones are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric collapse, how might we look to the old myths for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculine. Greetings, dear listeners. I'm excited today to share my conversation with one of my closer brothers, Eamon Armstrong. Eamon is the host of his popular podcast, Life is a Festival, promoting a life way of adventure and personal development through the lens of festival culture. I first met him as the Prince of Parties when he worked for Fest 300, where he got to travel the globe and report from the world's best festivals. It was at Rainbow Serpent in Australia where he happened to attend one of my first talks on masculinity and healing love. We bonded soon after and kept in touch after returning to our home places. Two years later, Eamon and I returned to Australia, where we offered a series of talks on the subject of mature masculinity. We were a great combination. I brought my experience and knowledge, and he offered his playfulness and vulnerability. Plus, he made me just a little more fabulous. More recently, he has experimented with stand-up comedy, exploring the conversation around men's work with a poignant irreverence. Up next, I've included a short clip before we dive into our conversation. Enjoy. When I was 17 years old, I got sent to what is called a therapeutic boarding school. Mm. Does anyone know what this is? No. Did anyone have any kids in their class who got like sent away? Yeah. They were just gone for like ever. Yeah. So it's a, th a therapeutic boarding school is a place that you go where they kind of like reprogram you to be sensitive and loving and kind because you did too many drugs. <laughs> it did not stop me doing drugs. Um, but I was there for two years, and the way the school was set up is that you were rewarded for divulging emotion. So we had three hours of group therapy three times a week. And the program was such that if you could cry, you kind of won. You would, you would get rewards for showing vulnerability. And not directly. It's not like you would be like, my daddy didn't like me. And they'd be like, okay, well, now you get to not do dishes anymore. But it was progress in the program. And progress was showing vulnerability. I once read a proposal for a study. I don't know if they ever did the study about therapeutic boarding schools. And it said that at therapeutic boarding schools, men learn traditionally feminine skill sets, but then they would use them for traditionally masculine goals. Mm. And 
I was like, oh, fuck, I do that. <laughs> I have all this, like, emotional literacy and vulnerability, and then I just alpha male with it. <laughs> I do. I'm doing it right now. And why do I do it? For this. For this. For validation. Mm -hmm. For applause. Mm -hmm. For people who are nodding right now and saying, ooh, they're <laughs> That's why I do it. How many people here really, really love validation? Yeah, like everybody. Because it's great. Because it feels so good. Eamon Armstrong. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for doing it in my house. <laughs> that was the question I was going to ask you first. If you would please situate us where we are in this moment. Oh, you are in my house in this moment. You're in my living room, which is where I often do my interviews, although I usually do them in my big purple throne, mm. which we are not sitting in. It is empty. We are in my living room in San Francisco, California. I have a bookshelf with color-coded books. I have a bunch of colorful festival posters. I have a big map of the world and and pins with places I've been. I have a collection of African masks and I have a purple guitar. That's where we are. It's a fabulous spot. And there's a nice fire burning mm. in a stove that is nice for this time of year because it's almost solstice, almost the darkest time mm. of the year. Mm -hmm. And so there's this nice fire burning. Mm. I feel cozy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I like cozy a lot. Summer is for festivals and winter is for cozy. Mm. Thanks for inviting me into your cozy space. You're welcome. This is not your first time being here. Mm -mm. You reminded me, actually. Maybe it wasn't the last time, maybe the time before that. I actually was here just as you were about to embark on your mythic quest. Oh, yeah. Diving right in <laughs> to the mythic quest. Before I, before I did my like year of traveling the world and having queer experiences yeah but let's not start there that's okay. it just reminded me of that that was cool maybe to circle back uh i'd love to begin first by asking you what's it like to be interviewed for a podcast Ooh, you know i was interviewed for a few podcasts before i launched my podcast i did one shortly after i launched it but i haven't been interviewed for a while it's interesting because i usually do a lot of preparation and my brain works a certain way when I'm running a podcast. So I'm aware of my guests and trying to set them up. I'm aware of what the audience might be hearing. I'm aware of myself and talking to you right now. I don't have that. And I actually feel like a little empty and vulnerable in a way, not having an <laughs> architecture of the conversation mm. to, to lead me. So yeah, it, I need to kind of settle into it, but I feel a little vulnerable. I feel like I don't have, I guess I, I guess I have you to grab onto since it's your show and my presumption is that you will take us to magical places, mm -hmm. but I feel a little n nervousness, a little, yeah, I, I don't have something to grab onto in this moment. I feel, it feels like the need to surrender. Mm. <laughs> Why is it always that? <laughs> Why is it always like surrender, but also act, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Surrender's hard. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate your willingness to mm, grapple with surrender. You know, something about surrender 
So I'm a really big fan of Tara Brock and um, her meditations. And she wrote this book, Radical Self-Acceptance. The only way to really progress in your life is to accept yourself where you are. And something about surrender that's interesting is we're, we're always trying to like force ourselves to surrender. Like, I need more surrender. Surrender, go. You know, and I think that a huge part of surrendering is to first hold the space that you are in that is the space of tension, the space of not surrendering, the space of anxiety, whatever mm-hmm. it is, and uh, widening your ability to hold that space so that surrender can happen within the space you're holding. Mm -hmm. Because really surrender is in a sense, a kind of grace. Mm -hmm. You're sort of like leaning into grace. You can't just say, ah, surrender. Mm -hmm. Orgasm. (laughs) (laughs) I like that segue. Yeah. Mm. Well, I assumed we'd talk about that. (laughs) I'd love to ask you, I mean, this episode for me is really circling around men's work or at least a place to begin, because I feel that's really where we intersected initially. You know, you've used this phrase or label sometimes that I'm perhaps one of your mentors in masculinity or men's work. Well, you, you're the one who got me into men's work. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually, well, the first thing that got me into the idea that there could be men's work or that one should examine one's own masculinity came from reading a book, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, which is a great entry Mm -hmm. point. But the first time that I saw someone teaching this material in a way was like, oh, wow, I can think about myself differently, was you Mm. at Rainbow Serpent Festival in 2016, Mm -hmm. the beginning of 2016, Mm -hmm. which is where we met. So yeah, you have been a mentor. You've been a colleague. I don't know. You're kind of like a peer mentor though. So mentor, I think when I think of my mentors, for some reason, they're usually like quite a bit older than me and they're sort of like done doing the thing that I'm now doing. Mm -hmm. And they are mentoring me along my path, which is somewhat separate to them. I don't know what the word is for more of a peer mentor where we're doing it together, but you're kind of a little bit farther along in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I would definitely consider you a mentor in men's work, but you're also so much a peer and a colleague and a friend Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. So Mm-hmm. I don't know. You don't have the same sort of like Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> well, take us back to 2016 then. And, and you're right. I don't, I consider us peers and that we've, you've taught me a lot actually about uh, masculinity and men's work as well. And I'd love for you to take us back to 2016. And like you said, you read the book, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. Um, actually, first I'd love for you to even to give a little bit for the listener about what is that book speaking to? As in, what is what are the core masculine archetypes? And I know it's a big question, but even just to situate briefly, what are these archetypes and where do they come from? So I got into that book because I ended an engagement. And for me, my engagement was about taking the next step in my life. I want to have a family. I want to have a child. I was in my early towards the mid thirties, like 32, 33 at the time. And I felt like I needed to get on with it. And I was in love with the woman I was with. We had some challenges, but I was like, let's do this. And then once we were engaged, those challenges got more intense and I ended that relationship. And 
I had one of those beautiful life moments of total identity crisis and confusion. And out of that, there were a couple of new things that came into my life. One was plant medicine. So I started drinking ayahuasca. Meditation came into my life. Actually, like tons of stuff came into my life at that time. And also this book. So this book, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, talks about four archetypes of mature masculinity. Uh, the king, the warrior, the magician, the lover. So, you know, pretty says what it does what it says on the tin. Mm -hmm. And for me, I had always seen masculinity through a really clear binary of masculine and feminine. The more masculine you are in a sense as a man, the better you are, the better you are at being a man. And the way to be a man is to perform not being a woman. And so this was the first time I was thinking like, okay, well, what is a man in and of it? self like who am i mm -hmm. as a man mm -hmm. and what what models would be helpful for me and i got a lot out of that book one that i'll just mention because i think it ties into a lot of other things is the lover mm. part of the man because the lover according to this rubric of these four archetypes that lover which is not just a lover in terms of the romance, but also a lover of food and a lover of mm. life and travel and adventure. That it seemed like that incorporated certain things that I thought of as feminine. Um, so King Warrior Magician Lover was very helpful at upending some of the binary thinking mm. and also more than anything, just opening the door to me thinking about this at all. Mm -hmm. It struck me as well as having yeah, read the book and also the book that came out around the same time as sort of a companion not officially, but was from Robert Bly, of course, Iron John. And you, you know what? You've always been like an Iron John dude. <laughs> and I feel like I'm a King Warrior Magician lover. Because uh -huh. yeah. you, you, I didn't actually end up reading Iron John until I was in Gabon. And when I first started reading Iron John, I kind of lost interest in it because it was too much in the myth. Mm -hmm. And I kind of felt like with Iron John... And I feel this about some like Jungian analysis, analyses of myths, which is like you find what you go looking for. Mm. So it's like, oh, well, the, the, the beard is this and the pearl under the pillow is the queen and the mother <laughs> and, and this is your mom and your mom did this. And it's sort of like, yeah, that all makes sense. That makes sense if you're reading it from the perspective of wanting to find those things. Mm -hmm. That's how I first looked at Iron John. Mm -hmm. Later I read it and I was like, oh, you know, the road of ashes, like, oh, okay. And like mm -hmm. I kind of, you know, I got more out of it. But for me, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover was more tangible as an approach to archetypes than some of the analyses of myths in that it felt more present to me and it didn't feel like it was kind of taking a story and saying, see, mm -hmm. see, look, it's men need this because of this story mm -hmm. that is mm -hmm. not relevant to your personal cultural history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I see Robert Bly too in that book. He does have a lot of commentary that is contextual to the time it was written. And then also like the story becomes a way of, of riffing and to look at, you know, what was going on in that moment, in this case, like the late eighties, early nineties, and even in his own life and the journey of his generation of men and the sensing maybe of the generation of men that were coming. Whereas King Warrior Magician Lover seems much more a kind of universal map that is in a way out of story, but a, a way of looking at the maybe the internal male psyche is maybe one way to understand it. And it feels like that maybe had, that has been effective to you in a sense that it's not bound to a certain context or a certain story. Yeah, you're, you're, are you saying that basically King Warrior Magician Lover kind of aged better? <laughs> well, the commentary certainly, because it doesn't really, it speaks a little bit to the current contemporary uh, time. Part of what I'm just trying to figure out is if, um, again, I want you to even explain what is an archetype. 
like you know what I mean because okay. in some ways to allow people in who are kind of like what the fuck King where would you right? okay well so let me uh, let me ask you something about this is a little meta about the podcast I'm not an authority on these things mm-hmm. so my value I think is more narrative and entertainment yeah. than you know like you're not sitting down with like a Jungian scholar you know you're yeah, sitting yeah. down with yeah Amen with Amen <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. and so as you as you ask me sort of about what these things mean what I'm giving you is is what they mean to me yeah um, so my understanding of archetypes is having sort of a general awareness of the work of Carl Jung and the idea that there is a collective unconscious that is actually evolving through time within the human species um, or actually I think maybe just within Western culture that gets a little fuzzy as you know is the collective unconscious culturally specific uh, but archetypes are essentially like platonic forms of characters in some kind of cosmic unfolding play. Mm-hmm. And you can use them to understand patterns in your own life and in the world around you. Mm-hmm. You can go super mystical and say that these archetypes are are, are real things. I don't quite know how that part works. So again, not the scholar, or I kind of think of them as, as just enticing narratives that are helpful for seeing patterns in not just the way that people interact with each other, but how to solve problems through understanding how people interact Mm. with each other. So for example, one of the archetypes that we tend to talk about a lot, especially in hippie culture is the shadow archetype. And the shadow is basically all of yourself that you don't want to see the light. I actually learned something. I had a new insight about the shadow, by the way. Great. I used to think of the shadow as the part of you that you think is bad Mm. or well, the part of you that is bad. And you need to integrate that and love the part of you that's bad. But I changed it to, it's the part of you that you think is bad. Mm. It's not the part of you that is bad is the shadow. Mm-hmm. It's the part of you that you think is bad. Mm-hmm. And you thinking it bad is what makes it the shadow. So the shadow actually isn't the collection of traits or attributes that might be considered untoward by society. Mm-hmm. It's actually anything that you have put in the shadow space in relation to yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And integrating the shadow is the idea of bringing back these parts of yourself that you wanted to separate in a sort of like Jekyll and Hyde, mm-hmm. get this bad stuff out of me and I'll be perfect. And then mm-hmm. actually the Hyde part of you carries on and tears up the town. Mm-hmm. So integrating the shadow is actually changing your understanding of whether you think parts of yourself are bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, Jungian archetype, the shadow is this, this, that part that, that isn't seen in the light. And, the value of that way of thinking about one's own psychology is that you can use this idea of the shadow to recognize that there are parts of you that you have exiled. Mm -hmm. Um, and these are your shadow elements and you can do the work of kind of bringing them back, which integrates you into a more whole self, which I guess makes life better. It Mm -hmm. seems to have done for me. So Mm -hmm. an archetype is, you know, like the shadow or, the king, the warrior, the magician, the lover are patterns in yourself that you can lean into and use to grow. Mm-hmm. That's how I look at them. I'm curious to hear how the archetypes have guided you in your journey. As you've described to me in the past from a Coachella bro into your time at Fest 300 and really someone who connected again with aspects of masculinity that 
have been harder for others, even including myself, to to uncover and to integrate, particularly around themes like surrender or femininity or you know feeling or all these realms that you were able to access and integrate. And I'd love for you to share a bit more of how that journey was for you. Maybe Joseph Campbell said that a well-lived life is a series of hero's journeys, Mm. or it might have been someone else referring to his work. But I think it was him that said that a life well-lived is a series of hero's journeys. Mm. And I think that's really important because I don't see life as one big hero's journey where you, I did the thing and now I'm done and can rest in the Shire or whatever. It's a kind of like continuing cycles. Mm. And so for me, you, you had mentioned Coachella Bro the journey from Coachella bro to Prince of parties. Actually, what's been more interesting recently is the journey from Prince of parties Mm -hmm. to podcast host. (laughs) Um, because that journey involved a certain type of maturation that required a certain arc of experience. Mm -hmm. So your question, as I understand it is how have these archetypes guided my transformation Mm -hmm. through these different kinds of stages of maturation, which I think is probably, the meat of the conversation that we're having today mm-hmm. because we're your podcast here is the mythic masculine. Mm-hmm. And for me, God, I love a good story. Mm-hmm. I want to live a beautiful story and I have to be careful because sometimes living into a story too much can limit your options and can get a little narcissistic. Mm-hmm. But I love a good story. When I was a little boy, my mother read to me lots of a more adult books because she didn't want to read me children's stories because she thought they were boring. Although she read me like 18th century children's stories, but mm. she read, I remember the Odyssey and being really infatuated with this idea of the many minded Odysseus and wanting to go on these Odysseys and learn these things and get caught and stuck in the land of the low cedars and then slay the Cyclops and then come home and find that there was another adventure. So for me, ever since I was young, I've really seen the world through adventure and through transformation Mm. uh, and journeying to transform and the adventure of transforming. And so when I was a Coachella bro back in 2007, I was trying to be a certain kind of man. Mm. I wanted to be a bro because I thought that that was the paradigm of masculinity. And Mm. I thought that would make the hot girls like me, which was Mm. not only did I want the hot girls to like me because I was attracted to them, but that conferred socially upon me, my value. And Mm. I was extremely motivated, have always been extremely motivated by external validation. (laughs) And the rubric for that was be as much like these dudes. Mm -hmm. And that was Coachella bro. I only went to Coachella once back then, but that's kind of a, Mm -hmm. you know, Coachella bro (laughs) and Coachella bro through to pretty prince of parties Mm -hmm. was about returning the exiled feminine. So that was me reconnecting with my, you know, the parts of myself that, that got called fag when I was little, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the singing and wearing bright colors and dancing. And that was a journey through burning man. But the, the book King warrior magician lover and the use of archetypes was really around not so much this connection with the feminine, which I'd actually developed some facility with mm. at that point. Um, we can talk more about that. Mm. But it was more about the idea of becoming a man, mm. which is a journey that took me out of wanting to be the prince of parties. Because the pretty prince of parties. The pretty prince of parties was very much like, I travel the world going to the best parties, and aren't I so cool? And I take photos with pretty girls. So, you know, just mm. there, you know, let's 
expressing myself in these ways that and wanting attention and wanting wanting to be liked on social media and wanting to be seen as living this fabulous life mm-hmm. which is when we met <laughs> which is when we met yeah. we met when i was balls deep in <laughs> being a pretty prince mm-hmm. i realize i'm galloping along in in storytelling at the mm-hmm. moment but i want to ground into how archetypes have aided my mm-hmm. personal transformation. Mm-hmm. So in the book, King Warrior, Magician Lover, to me, the most interesting part of that book is not the king, warrior, magician, or lover, mm-hmm. but the archetype of the hero. Mm-hmm. So the way the book's set up is it gives you a kind of psychological journey through archetypes of male maturation through these, these ascending boy psychology archetypes. And then you cross a threshold into mature masculine archetypes of king warrior magician lover which have their shadows as well the king has the tyrant for example Mm -hmm. the final stage of boy psychology is the hero this is the best part of the whole book Mm -hmm. in my opinion Mm -hmm. this is and and the thing that has been so prevalent in my narrative over the past couple of years so the hero i always thought the hero to be the thing you most want to be you want to be the hero i want to be the hero And of course, that's indicative of the way that I was thinking about myself in the world. Here's the thing about the hero. The hero is still a boy Mm -hmm. because the hero is preoccupied with himself. Mm -hmm. The hero wants to slay the dragon and win the damsel and, you know, have the bard sing about him for the ages. Mm -hmm. The hero wants to save the world, but it wants to save the world as himself. Mm -hmm. He wants to take the burden of the world on his shoulders and conquer all foes. And I think the hero often gets kind of stymied in their own hubris. That's Mm -hmm. one of the aspects of these, these heroic figures that, that, that go too far and their wings are burnt in the sun and they Mm -hmm. fall through the earth or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, So this threshold point between boy and man, according to this particular framework is this moment where the hero recognizes that the dragon that he is meant to slay is in fact himself. Mm -hmm. That's the best part of the book. And there's a line from Joseph Campbell in The Hero with a Thousand Faces where he says, and I'm paraphrasing, we needn't fear the path ahead for the heroes of all time have gone before us. And where we had thought we would find a demon, we will find a god. Where we had thought we would slay another, we will slay ourselves. And where we had thought we would be alone, we will be one with all the world. Mm. And that is the liminal ritual space of transformation between boy and man. Mm-hmm. Is when the boy properly understands that the demon that he has been seeking, the thing that finally needs to be conquered to come into wholeness, is actually his own ego and his own preoccupation with himself. Mm-hmm. And once he steps across that threshold, he is no longer the hero because the hero isn't necessary because he doesn't need to win the world himself. He doesn't need to prove his greatness. He can step into society as an integrated member of community Mm. and serve and love and give not for his own glory, but because that is the way of things. Mm. And this idea of slaying yourself has been this project that I'm not super good at <laughs> <laughs> that I've been, that I've been working on mm-hmm. from the Prince of Parties. And when, you know, you, you talked about when we were in this house and I was about to go on my big, my big journey and I knew this story mm-hmm. of, 
I knew the hero's journey from Joseph Campbell. I knew the King Warrior Magician lover. And I was like, all right, I'm going out to slay myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I was, mm-hmm. I'm going to, and classic, classic, you know, privileged white dude. I'm going to f- go all around the world yeah. so I can learn this important lesson. <laughs> I went and I, I sat Vipassana in Canada, Canada, because you know, why not? I became, became a yoga teacher in Bali. And ultimately I went and initiated with the Bwiti people in Gabon, Mm -hmm. all of this to like come to the threshold and finally slay myself. And it turns out that (laughs) it wasn't, it was the same. I I was grabbing onto the story. Like I want to live this heroic myth. Mm Mm-hmm so that I can get to this other point. But actually I was in a cul-de-sac of my own Mm. preoccupation with heroism and Mm. the narrative itself. Mm -hmm. Wherever you go, there you are. Yeah. Mm. I mean, this makes me think of how the role of culture of village is actually the necessary ingredient to successfully can or to successfully pull off a, a rite of passage or initiation is I think what you're speaking to and has been called that the shift from an adolescent psychology into a mature psychology. And there's something about the kind of wily nature of the ego, which if the ego is the one who's running the show to get to that place of essentially its own annihilation, which is the architecture of a true rite of passage, then you can see the paradox all of a sudden, I think, where it's like the ego is seeking its own end, but that means that the ego is always going to keep a back door open because it would never seek its own end. Well, and it doesn't, it, the ego is seeking itself, its aggrandizement mm-hmm. through a story of its own end. That was the thing for me is I'm going to conquer my ego. I'm going to slay the dragon that mm-hmm. you know is myself and step into this next phase and I'm exactly as you said, I'm going to run it myself and then I'm going to come home with one hell of a story, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. as if that's the boon to bring to the village is my own story of my own greatness. Actually, you know what? <laughs> you know, I didn't even really think about it fully right now. So mm-hmm. I was going to write a book mm-hmm. about this experience because, of course, I'm having this journey and and I'll, I'll write a book and it'll help other men. It'll help them mm-hmm. to, you know, deal with their feminine and integrate their sexual shadows and all these things that yeah. I worked on. And then finally, the I will, you know, demonstrate this stepping through. You want to know what has been the most powerful growing up thing for me recently? I'd love to hear. Realizing that I wasn't writing a book, that I was just talking about it. Mm -hmm. Realizing that nobody wanted to fucking read a book that I wrote about traveling around the world trying to find myself. Mm. Like about how, how cliche is that? And coming into a kind of lonely, prosaic humility in my home in San Francisco, mm. not to say I don't still have fabulous aspects of my life mm-hmm. and, and actually working on a project that's about other people and not about me. Mm. The podcast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So life is a festival. The only reason it works is because it's not about me. Mm. Like you are interviewing me right now. So you're listening to Amen stories. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine how insufferable that would be on a, <laughs> on a weekly podcast, have mm. a weekly podcast about Amen stories? Mm-hmm. It w- doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I guess in a sense, I'm sort of skipping 
I'm, I'm skipping by the whole like Iboga initiation and the all this crazy stuff. Which is uh, actually there is a podcast episode where you do go into detail. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, I'd love for the listener if they do want to hear at length that story, which is profound. Uh, to check out that episode, which I could put in the show notes sure. that they yeah. could check out. Yeah, it's um, episode 18 of Life is a Festival. I repost the other podcast that I did with a podcast called Life Rights, mm-hmm. which is about my the journey that I'm alluding to in this conversation. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting in the state, f- place that I'm at right now is, you know, you want to live like a great story. Mm-hmm. You, you, you want to create your own mythology. You want to be the, you know, we're so wired to narrative. Mm-hmm. But... There's not really an end point. So you kind of live through it and then revise it backwards. And so now, as I look at these different sorts of particularly psychedelic peak experiences where I stepped through some portal where I thought on the other side I would be made whole and Mm -hmm. and successful or whatever it is, I see them all as these false starts. And now in this moment, I see work as kind of the antidote for the... Puera Turnus. Do you know that expression? Mm, mm, mm. Puera Turnus, the boy who will never grow up, Peter Pan. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Puera Turnus. Yep. I, I don't know if I've been pronouncing it right. A, um, a, a very small Jewish Jungian psychologist in Bali mm. told me that. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say he's very small. If he's listening, you're not, you're not very small. I just remember it's all you relative, as, I suppose. As, as just a small man. Uh, well, you make a good point, though, which is you went off on this heroic quest and came back. I went off on a quest designed to be heroic. Yeah. And came back with the realization that the quest for the story of the quest, I suppose. Yeah. And well, and I didn't come back with the realization that the quest for the story of the quest was a failure. I came back from the quest to write the story. Mm-hmm. And I realized that there was no fucking story. I mean, there's a, sto- it's a story. It's a great story. It's a great dinner table story. Mm. It's a, it's a fine podcast story. <laughs> Yeah. But it is not a book. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's not the kind of thing that I think that someone should spend, should dedicate hours of their life, you know, consuming. And, and that's not because I have been transformed into a humble man. It's because part of the experience was that realization, and now I'm here. And I had I was doing two things. I was trying to write a book, and I was building a podcast. Mm-hmm. And I just naturally found that the podcast was so much more fun. It's iterative. It ships every week, and it's about someone else. And I learn a lot, and I'm mm-hmm. connecting with new people, and it's alive. Writing a book alone by myself about mm-hmm. my fabulous journeys Mm -hmm. and it was fabulous you know like i studied with the transgender taoist master Zhenzan dao about these you know that's some mythopoetic shit about you know healing my wounded sexuality like that's cool Mm -hmm. but god yeah i it's not it's the same spirit that i sent off to die you know it's interesting about peak experiences and rites mm. of passage and all that kind of stuff. We we have this desire to have the biggest fireworks. But the changes that happen in our life in our lives happen often incrementally through habits and mm. through intentions that we sustain over time. And the peak experiences will reveal to us, okay, I do need to, you know, make my bed every morning and start meditating, all this kind of stuff. But it's it's the daily shifts mm-hmm. that I think matter more. And 
so I went off to have this wham, bam, rite of passage, go into the liminal space, become like the caterpillar. I'm the goo, like, uh, I'm mm-hmm. the goo. And on the other side, I am the man. Mm-hmm. <sighs> nope. <laughs> you speak about the end of the hero archetype. And actually, for me, this is a really compelling moment because looping it back to men's work in general, that I find, you know, there's something in the, in the hero which also fits the mold of the lone wolf, which often mm. a lot of men, right, have this sense of that they're carrying the world or they got to do it alone or, you know, they'll have, they'll have companions often with other men, but, you know, really in the place of, say, emotional, you know, vulnerability or willingness to open up in those places, oftentimes they're known to, most men are known to hide it or to, you know, to basically stay alone in it. And there's something about the defeat of the hero, which I think opens the gateway to the willingness to actually trust other men to really begin to open up, Mm. to really begin to say like, Oh wow. You know, all of us are like failed heroes basically. Mm. Right. And there's that in that humility, Mm. there is that threshold. Yeah. The humility of the failed hero that allows us connect with each other. That's good stuff. That's good because, you know, there's only really room for one hero, Mm -hmm. you know, and when we're all trying to be that hero, we're all moving in kind of different directions. And with that book, with King Warrior, Magician, Lover, when you cross the threshold, then you get to take your place within a community of people, which is itself more, it's sort of more noble than Mm -hmm. the hero, Mm -hmm. but it's subtler. And I like this idea of we're kind of wounded or failed heroes that then find each other and then we can be properly in community. That's mm-hmm. that's that's good. That's pretty good, right? You maybe titled it something about <laughs> failed heroes. Because uh, I actually, you know, for all the, I mean, I did the initiation with the Bwiti. I mm-hmm. spent five days in a chamber. I did flood dose of Iboga in a very dangerous environment. It's a lethal, potentially lethal psychedelic. Like I did the thing, but that didn't. It was just. It, it was a big bang thing and. Mm-hmm. But that was just another big bang thing. Mm-hmm. What have you returned with, though, on your quest again from this journey from the Coachella Bro to the Pretty Prince of Parties, and now this maybe say the the Man of Service? Yeah, that, that you know, I feel yeah. you you have returned with some boon that yeah. that you know, and even as you connect with other men now, right, and you see certain patterns showing up or certain yeah. Oh, I'm I, I have a good I have a I've got a great answer to this. Please, okay. I love the idea that you serve in the way that feeds you most. Right. So for me, what I've learned, and this actually relates to, I wanted to tell you that I'm not doing men's work in the same way anymore. Mm -hmm. That's really changed for me. And it totally ties into answering your question. My boon is my story, but not in the way I thought it was. I thought my story was what a great hero. How cool is Eamon? Mm -hmm. And that's the boon. That's not the boon. The boon is the humor. Mm. The boon is the play and the fun. Mm -hmm. The boon is telling my story with all of these colorful little pieces. I'm a colorful fucking dude. <laughs> True story. I'm colorful. I'm, in, I'm like an interesting bird to look at. Mm. And if I say, this is masculinity and I have done the thing and I have gone away and I have learned and now you will know what to do. Fuck me for that. Mm-hmm. No one wants to hear that. Mm-hmm. And I used to do, I did the talk, how to dismantle toxic masculinity. And, and mm-hmm. I, you know, my earnest seeking, but definitely as if I had known something. And now my men's work, it's not even men's work. I just do kind of stand up comedy about what a ridiculous person I am trying to do men's work. Mm. And <laughs> right. 
And so the humor of the storytelling and the play and definitely the earnest searching, but the earnest searching with the foibles and the vulnerabilities, Mm -hmm. um, that's how, that's what I give, you know, that I gave a, I did a 10 minute stand up talk about courageous, vulnerable balls. (laughs) Have you seen it? No. No, no, I, I, I did it. Um, I did it for like a stand-up comedy class and mm. made a video of it, but it's basically talks about performative vulnerability mm. and how I was, how I was trained to perform vulnerability and I'm really good at it and it's very in vogue now. So mm. like the, this, this sort of like being open so that people will think that you're like wise and helpful and smart and not predatory <laughs> like, <laughs> like that yeah. thing seduction yeah yeah that thing that you know the the vulnerability is currency thing i was actually trained in doing that uh, as an adolescent because mm. i got sent to a therapeutic boarding school where i was taught to like you know show my feelings and just mm. ooze them out so that, it, you know, and oh, I've lost my train of thought. Oh, well, the point is, is the stand-up comedy was about making fun of performative vulnerability, but mm. not by telling others this don't perform vulnerability. It's wrong and do this instead. That shit sucks. Instead, it was like, check out what a dummy I am. Like, mm-hmm. look at, watch me, watch me do that thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, and I think most people listening will have had the feeling of harmony that comes in the body, mind, spirit when you are closer to your purpose. I mean, you certainly mm-hmm. know that feeling. It's mm-hmm. a great feeling. Mm-hmm. It's like a guitar coming into tune mm-hmm. when you're moving towards your purpose. And the humor, play, love, laughter, make fun of myself, be earnest in my, in my shortcomings— and then show that and give that, that's so much my ikigai. Mm. You know ikigai? Mm-mm. You don't know ikigai? No. Wow, ikigai. Ikigai is a Japanese concept articulated usually through a four-part Venn diagram mm. of your purpose. Mm. And it is that which you love, that which you're good at, that which the world needs, and that which you can be paid for. And the bullseye is called the ikigai. Mm-hmm. And so I'm still working on getting paid for it. (laughs) But yeah, the Pretty Prince of Parties, I think, didn't become the king of seriousness and the king of men's work or anything like that. I think that it's kind of moved into, I don't know, maybe just there's not a name now. Mm. It was just me Mm. doing Mm. my podcast, Mm -hmm. trying to like... I don't know. Be a nice person. I want to have a baby at some point. You know, like. <laughs> well, we could talk about that. I'd first love to to <laughs> ask you about. It's almost like you're able to look back at your own, you know, caricatures, particularly around, mm. say, Eamon doing men's work or Eamon teaching men's work, for example. You know, the escapades that we had going to Australia the mm. following year. Yeah. Uh, after, you know, we'd met and then stayed in touch and you were on your book. That was, yeah, that was on my quest during my quest. Part of my quest was men's work in and we, Australia. And we you. went to Australia yeah, and we, you kind of came to me. We were like, I was going to there, some festivals you were coming to. And then we're like, Hey, let's, let's just book some dates and do like a little mini men's festival oh, or so, no, men's work thing. Uh, but I'd love to hear your reflections now on that. Oh, um, also from this lens, like you say, of being able to 
you know, make fun of or, or even speak about, like, what is the state of men's work now that you're able to sit in a place that you're not trying to, you know, get it right of mm. the, here's this guy just yeah. like toxic masculinity, yeah, but, yeah. you know, maybe with a playful, but also a kind of, you know, sharp eye to, you know, that person you were as well. And also men's work now. Well, so for one thing, you were definitely helpful because when we were doing the, our Australian tour, you were the authority mm-hmm. and I was the playful supporter. So actually that was an experience where I had lessened on me the need to be the hero who knew every, who knew it, mm-hmm. who was, who was, who was going to heal all of these men. <laughs> I kind of, you were holding in, in some ways, I think actually when we did that full day workshop in Byron Bay, mm-hmm. I think we might've talked about how kind of you were the masculine and I was the feminine mm. in that workshop. Mm-hmm. I, that's That's kind of how I, I felt like not that. Okay. Short time out to say the masculine and the feminine, mm-hmm. by the way, anytime people talk about that shit, they're always talking about what they feel, not what is. Mm. There isn't a masculine and a feminine. It's like a yin-yang thing where they're changing and shifting. It depends which direction you look at them from. So just, you know, people are talking about like, oh, God, the divine masculine is these these things and the, divi- and the sacred, ugh, enough of all that. But anyway, in that experience uh-huh. of that workshop, I really felt like I felt my feminine playing with your masculine as mm-hmm. I understand these energies in my own being. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that was probably the space where my leading men's workshops loosened up to be more emergent of what was present mm-hmm. unless I'm giving a talk and teaching a thing because I had you to kind of guide me in that space. Mm-hmm. And it definitely evolved since then. And I have one funny story about really mm-hmm. what kind of changed for me with that, which I will tell in a minute, but I want to make sure I answer your question. Cause yeah, I guess my curiosity too, is being able to look at, you know, you spoke of this term, the divine masculine, which gets bandied around a lot, uh, along with the divine feminine and, how it seems problematic to you because of perhaps setting up some Pro- kind of problematic also seems problematic. Yeah. <laughs> and so almost like, what would you, how would you uh, speak to the current like climate of men's work, you know, women's work now having kind of dipped in and, and feels like now you've got a different position on it now. And like, how would you not critique is maybe a strong word, but how could you bring a different perspective now of where you're sitting on the, maybe the, you know, the shadow of it, as we talked about the shadow earlier as well. Maybe I'm trying to evoke a little bit of the stand-up, Eamon. Like, what would you say about it now? Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad you clarified that because yeah. once you say now it's time for the stand-up, Eamon, I definitely can just pull out the jokes. I'm joking. <laughs> um, so a couple of things happened that changed my perspective about men's work. One was the election of Donald Trump. Hmm. That was definitely something where... Prior to that, I had actually kind of started just a little bit before that, mm-hmm. but that kind of popped some of my liberal bubble mm-hmm. around what should be. And I started to see for the first time the kind of meanness and arrogance of the judgy, woke masculinity perspective. It's tricky though, because you know, if you're talking about the safety of women, yeah, there's no room, you know, we need to do the men's work to make sure that women are safe. So when you look at men's work through the context of women's safety, Mm -hmm. 
then yeah, let's do all the lowest common denominator shit because we need to get out of this quote, toxic masculinity. But as it's evolved, I started to see that even the idea of toxic masculinity is so reductive to the multiplicity of lived experiences for men. Mm. And I see stuff about around men's work where it seems infantilizing and sort of like, well, the men are finally working on themselves and like, we need to, we need to help these poor men work on themselves. And that's, for me, it just shifted. And I know you wanted stand up, but instead you're getting professorial, <laughs> dude, you got the opposite of what you wanted. For me, it was just an experience of like the, you know, the Dunning Kruger effect. No, the Dunning Kruger effect is that the, the less you know about something, the more you think you know about it. Mm, mm-hmm. And there's a kind of a U curve where you start mm-hmm. out and you're like, Oh my God, I know it all. And then in the middle, you're like, I know nothing. And then as you really, really know a lot, you start to be like, okay, I, I kind of have a sense of this mm-hmm. landscape. So I think that, I think that is a, the Dunning Kruger effect is so much what happens with modern men's work mm-hmm. that is guided by people thinking they know what men need or people who are building brands on telling men how to be men. Mm -hmm. I think successful men's work involves groups of men getting together to share their personal experience about being of their gender and things that they're having challenges that associate with, you know, having a penis and, you know, being in these different kinds of relationships. Mm -hmm. So for me, the evolution of my relationship to men's work that has ultimately gotten me to the point of, stand-up comedy is stepping further and further and further into my own experience with some humility and with humor. Mm -hmm. Because if you're funny, then people can, you disarm people and you invite them in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How I really nailed this home for myself was I did a talk at Burning Man naked with a woman also naked and it was called the penis and vagina dialogues. Mm. And we were going to talk about our genitalia and we got naked and started doing a workshop. And of course it's quite an intense thing to just be in a room where no one's naked, but then two people are and you're looking at them and they're talking about their, you know, (laughs) and what really changed the vibe was a joke. Mm. I told a joke about how I once masturbated to a poem. Hmm. And it wasn't even a neurotic poem. It was just a poem that was that I thought was really good because I wrote it. <laughs> and so really... You masturbated I, to a poem that you wrote. I masturbated to a poem that was not about sex that I wrote. Wow. When, I mean, 18, so you masturbate about anything. But mm-hmm. I was just like, I fucking love this poem so much. <laughs> I really liked the poem. And I jerked off about it. And just... Mm. very odd experience but telling that story created just kind of broke the room into a bunch of giggling and then from that point forward mm. we were all in it together and they were kind of receiving this experience and that really hammered home the the, the value of humor mm. in and humorous storytelling and sharing these ideas so that people can then look at what you're doing and they can take from it what's valuable to them and feel like they're invited in and they're like oh this is funny motherfucker well oh oh i do that mm. okay maybe oh mm-hmm. well that's interesting mm. interesting uh, you know i hear what you're saying that the perhaps like the 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 rush or the desire to craft a kind of universal archetype of this is what a man's supposed to be and i hear perhaps that in your resistance to 
the, even the terminology of you know divine masculine and divine feminine that it, well it often creates like a, a, this a universal ideal right and I feel like in a culture uh, this culture where many are railing against the existing or existing ideals of masculinity you know the stoic man the numb man the domination based you know man that it seems like the antidote for a lot of men's work is to try to craft like a better universal. Well, right. yeah, and, and, it's, and it's through the same mechanism that is causing so much suffering, which is man as doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, at one point it was like, you got to be a man. Being a man means you don't cry. And being a man means you're the breadwinner. But, but, then, but now we need to be a different man. We need to be a good man. Mm. You need to be a good man. I think that a lot of young, a lot of people my age, so I'm 37, a lot of people my age grew up in a society that was awakening to men doing shitty stuff. Mm. And a lot of young men grew up kind of, see, I'm even doing it by saying a lot of men grew up. I think that this is an experience a lot of people have that I've talked to a lot of people about, but let me Mm. make it just me. Mm -hmm. So my dad was an alcoholic when I was a little boy. He has incredible integrity, gotten sober, we're great friends. But when I was little, my dad was the bad one and my mom was the good one. Mm -hmm. And I think that experience of seeing the bad dad, the, the example of masculinity that is harmful with drunk and aggressive and Mm -hmm. critical, not in touch with his emotions. And then being told, well, you're, you're going to be a good man. Mm-hmm. My, my little boy is going to be a good man. You're going to be a good man. And you need to, you know, you got to, you got to treat women this way. You got to mm-hmm. behave in this way. And those values are, I think are important. The values of treating people well, that's really important. Mm-hmm. But the idea that you need to be a good man, you need to make sure that you're not a bad man. Mm-hmm. I think that that potentially is part of this male shame Mm. that I think a lot of people have. And a lot of the sort of like nice guy, new Mm. agey, like spiritual bypassing kind of vibe is like, well, I'm, I'm being good. Mm -hmm. What is good? You Mm. know, the good that we might've been taught was a reaction to a certain kind of bad. Mm -hmm. So it's continuing to be in a binary. Mm. I'd love to just share a bit of story. I mean, how this played out for me very much so is, Again, growing up, looking out at the mayhem, you know, in the world, largely perpetuated by men and seeing, you know, basically all these ways of which like, whoa, I do not want to be that. And I would be a good man. I would be the nice guy, that whole thing. And how that really finally detonated for me was in the end of my marriage. When, mm, yeah, when yeah, that's where, it, that's where that detonates. It often happens. Yeah. Where, you oh, know, yeah, I read your story. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, that's a long story as well. It's an, I wrote a piece about it, but that, you know, I went to the edge of what I felt was, you know, what it meant to be in a relationship and to explore, you know, further into cultural taboos around, you know, monogamy and all these different things that, and I was trying to do it in a very conscious way. And ultimately I feel like that was too much for my wife at the time that the the edge kind of exploration was just further than she was prepared to go. And ultimately it ended up in us separating and you know, there's a story behind that, but really the tone of it for me was like, I felt I was trying to do the whole thing with as much integrity and as much goodness as I could being good. And after the marriage ended 
And for me, really feeling like a deep sense of being abandoned by the feminine. That in a way I was, I, I was like, I did everything right. And still it was too much. And she left and ultimately, you know, connected, fell in love with someone else. And, you know, their lives now are together and it's a different story. But I felt in the rea- my reactivity to that was like, I no longer wanted to be good. I was like, fuck this. Like, I'm not going to be good anymore. And I almost felt like the rush of all the repressed places in me that I had kept, you know, away because it was like, oh, I can't, I can't be those things. Those are good boys, you know, don't do it. Don't have those. I, I actually launched me into this whole exploration, which largely actually took me into like the underworld, I would say of, you know, sexuality and in kink and all these places in which it, it, it was almost like that, that I had to go there, of course, to retrieve all of those, those dis, disowned places within me. And in many ways, I'm so grateful I did because, you know, ultimately I was able to kind of surface again after the fact, but I'm retrieving all of these parts of myself and come back into a more, I would say, integrated place. But, um, you know, with this story of hearing this, the reactivity and the need to not create this binary that I hear you're saying. And, you know, I wonder again how to create um, spaces where men can still come to, where they can begin to unfold, you know, and bring forth all of these ways, but not uphold a certain ideal, which I actually see is happening in men's work a lot, that there is this kind of noble, um, heroic ideal is sort of rising again within the context of even uh, men's work that's supposed to actually be the antidote to it. Yeah. So when you're talking about men's work, I think there's different kinds of men's work. And one thing to be aware of is who's building brands. Mm-hmm. What are the goals of brand building? Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of spaces where people want to be like men's work gurus or people are trying to build a business that seems to kind of lean itself more towards absolutes towards, mm-hmm. you know, if you're selling something, you need to sell a product and the product needs to fit the market and the market is men looking to be different. So you give them a different man to be, mm. you know, as opposed to sort of men's circles that are smaller and more kind of collaborative and are more the experience of muddling through it together. Mm. Because I think that the thing about men's work is that it's not about becoming better men. It's about creating the space to muddle through our masculinity together. Mm. And it's more about community and problem solving in community. And as you were saying earlier, it's about getting more into a kind of village collaborative thing because, you know, in the modern world, we're quite atomized in our lives and we tend to put so much on primary romantic partners. And Mm -hmm. I think one of the big values of, of men's work is to be in a different framework to bring these questions about our careers and about our actual romantic partners. Mm -hmm. And, I don't think the value of men's work is to get from one kind of man to another, but more to be in a supported community. Mm. To be clear, I haven't done all the workshops. I haven't even done the Mankind Project, which I've heard is actually quite good. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is you, fine. Have, I've have done you done it. Mankind? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's based on archetype stuff. I mean, I think that, yeah, I, I think that a jovial alternative to the seriousness of men healing their masculinity is valuable because 
one of the one of the main wounds in masculinity is that it's wrong that something's wrong that we need to fix mm. it that we you know and that's that kind of man is doing the mm. breadwinner is a man doing you know the the good man is is a man doing there's so much doing and performing you know mm-hmm. i did a talk at burning man this year and there's a panel that i that i put together and it actually is the last of that kind of men's work that I'm going to be doing Mm. for at least for a while. A woman who I invited on the panel made a comment that I think is kind of endemic to men's work, which is just kind of how she felt about what the masculine was and what the feminine was. And she said that the fem, the masculine is the bread and the feminine is the meat and the cheese and the, and the <laughs> lettuce. And, and the feminine needs the, the masculine to, to, be, to hold the feminine. And I was listening to this, and, and I was just like, what, what is that? What does that mean? You know, like, what is, how, who, who is that helpful for? And, uh, and there was a question-answer period where a young man raised his hand, and he said, I disagree with the sandwich mm. thing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be the bread. Mm-hmm. I want to be the meat or the mustard or the cheese. God, hold me. Mm-hmm. And it was so beautiful and so good and so valuable in where we're at with men's work. Because here's the thing. A lot of men's work happens orthogonal to a lot of other fucking hippie shit. Mm. A lot of fucking woo-woo shit. You know, I've given talks at festivals. You walk around a festival and you can walk into a a carnival tent where some expert is telling you about how crystals are going to heal your chakras. And everybody (laughs) is going to sit around and be like, yes, this is science. We are being taught this right now. Mm -hmm. These are very wiggly spaces. And I think that there are a lot of folks who see that there is a need in terms of the evolution of masculinity, authentically want to help mm-hmm. and kind of confuse their own tapestry of insight and ideas and narratives and wishful thinking for something that they can teach. Mm-hmm. And I did that, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that, we have to be really careful because these narratives are mimetic and you can seed unhealthy earworms because you're not really paying attention. You walk around saying, you know, men, all men just need to cry. Some men don't fucking need to cry. Some men need to have some serious boundaries. Mm -hmm. Some men need to have anger and express that anger. You know, it's not that every man needs to be neutered because of the violence perpetuated against women. The violence perpetuated against women, and that I said this earlier in the podcast, that's a that's that's fundamentally needs to be addressed by all men and women. Absolutely. But the fact that that exists does not mean that we as men need to completely defang ourselves and, and lose the, uh, the powerful vitality that comes from instincts in us that if handled incorrectly are in fact predatory. 
this is itself toxic. Mm. And all of this is stuff that I just feel. It's not the way it is, which is kind of the point that I'm making. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was a bit of a rant. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I appreciate it. I mean, mm. well, I love what you said about the, for you, it's not about finding like another universal, another, this is the way that all men are supposed to be, you know, the bread and the sandwich or whatever it is. And, and I really like this idea that it's about creating the spaces where we can speak to, and in a way almost be prisms for how it is to grapple with masculinity, with femininity. Well, and you say grapple, here's the thing. This is all a big fucking adventure. Mm. You know, coming back to the archetypes, the archetypes are forms that allow us to see patterns, but they're also um, tools for building mythology and narratives Mm -hmm. for the purpose of, what's the purpose? Adventure. Moving through the transformational thresholds of life with as much joy and, and community and play and aliveness as possible. And so grappling with being a man with in the modern world, like anything, I think that you're going to do great if you see it as an adventure, mm. as a call to adventure. Mm-hmm. And I've, I did this in a talk once. It was, it was the theme of a talk I did in Bali about masculinity, where there's a crisis mm. in masculinity. Mm-hmm. Around the world, masculinity is in crisis. And the, this, I'd, as you can tell, I'd kind of gotten into the jokey thing. Uh-huh. I was, I'd already, this, is, this is around where I was getting more and more into the joke and making jokes. There's mm-hmm. a crisis. Uh, masculinity is in crisis. It's such a big crisis. And, but the crisis in masculinity is a call to adventure. Mm. And the adventure isn't to find a rock-solid masculinity where we'd be like, all of these masculinities have failed us, but I have found the one true masculinity. And you can imagine like there's like a sea of, of kind of like broken masculinities and you're standing on one <laughs> precarious rock in the sea that you're like, I've found the masculinity, but mm-hmm. then, you know, that rock smashes and you jump to another rock. Or I mean, mm-hmm. I'm visualizing something very mm-hmm. roiling and vibrant. But um, that the fact that there that masculinity is in question and that we must be nimble in our own relationship to mm-hmm. who we are is an opportunity for mm-hmm. a widening of the spirit in ways that have nothing to do with gender. Mm. You know, that's what's so cool about being, you know, fluid in gender. It's not, Oh my God, I'm in this prison of masculinity. It's like, well, what would happen if I wear a dress? Mm-hmm. Like what would happen? Who would I be? What if I had an avatar that was like a beautiful Southern belle? Mm-hmm. What if I, you know, mm-hmm. how can the fact that gender has been constrictive, how can that lead to actual more play and more connection? Mm. And so in terms of doing men's work and finding a non-universal masculinity, I think it's important to think about what is the goal? What are you trying to find? Mm-hmm. You bring up a really beautiful aspect of the medicine actually that I find being in men's spaces Hmm. where what it gives me is an opportunity for uh, other men to model aspects of masculinity that I don't possess or have never thought about uh, or never give myself permission to. Yeah. And so I actually feel like this is one of the medicines that you've brought to me as well in our interactions that by, you know, sharing spaces with you and seeing ways in which you, 
yeah, sometimes have been or often have been more fabulous. And <laughs> sometimes that does sometimes doesn't sound very fabulous. We are often fabulous nature. Uh, whereas it's been again, it's created the sense of like, oh wow, like I could experiment with that, and maybe for another man too. It is in the realm of you know deep qualities of you know vast intellectual capacity or physical physicality in ways too that one like if men are able to come together in a field of trust then qualities that um, they may find competitive or, or envious of because in a culture where men are often pitted against each other and it's you know the survival of the fittest and blah 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 those are things to fear but in a culture of trust and particularly in circles where there is that, you know, relationship and the ability to see each other and to like, wow, be, you know, to respect each other and to celebrate each other. Then I think it's almost like, you know, I'm thinking now of this other quote from Carl Jung, which I really appreciate, which is, he said, I'd rather be whole than good. Oh, I was wondering if you were going to bring that one out. You're the, you told me about that one. I like that quote. Yeah. And I feel of it in this moment that, you know, again, this question of what does it mean to be a good man? What does it mean to be a good man? If, if in the past to be a good man was, you know, breadwinner, to be stoic, to be unemotional, to be blah, blah, all those things, you know, clearly that's kind of on the outs or that's labeled now as a, as a toxic masculinity. But if it's replaced now with being a good man is the, you know, deeply vulnerable, you know, bread of the sandwich man who, you know, is stoic in the face of the wild feminine Shakti and all this stuff. Again, I feel like that's creating a, a kind of uh, idolization of a, a particular universal man. And I think this whole journey of this conversation uh, has really allowed me to see that really for me, the journey is coming to wholeness. And I think mm. we actually need, I mean, I'll say me, men, I've found my capacity to be in more wholeness by developing relationships with other men in a, in a meaningful way. I love to model my exploration of masculinity and that's what people like. Mm -hmm. And there are people in my life who I know are getting a lot out of seeing this unusual way that I am, particularly mm -hmm. around the femininity and the sexuality. Mm. And so like, I'm, I'm kind of flirty with my straight male friends and not because I want to, not, I'm not coming on to them, but I like to kind of be playful in that way. And that's something that I've gotten feedback from male friends that has been really nourishing and healing for them. Mm -hmm. And I think you give a lot by, you know, it's kind of a, a, a cheesy trope to say that, your job is to find your special gifts and then give them away to the world. But I think that that's really, really, if they're the modern masculinity, the real modern masculinity, in my opinion, is the individual well-nourished, truthful essence self, that individuation of the divine that you are in a male form being expressed in the world in all of its kaleidoscope of ways that others can look at and say, oh, I can be more like myself because I see the expression in you. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that all people can, and, and I don't like the word should, but this is a, the, our birthright is our unique ind individuation. Mm. And men can demonstrate that to other men and women can demonstrate that to other women and to other men and non-binary, like we can all demonstrate it. And when we see someone who is a unique expression of something that we thought we understood and they kind of blow it out of the water, mm -hmm. this is what helps break down barriers and say, oh, wow, I thought, 
I thought men were supposed to be like, wait, that is that is that a gay dude or mm. or is it is that what? But it's just no, that's. Oh, I guess that's just what he's like. He's mm-hmm. just like that. Mm. And I think we've actually seen more and more of that, particularly in you know non-binary people and trans people mm-hmm. who are really boldly expressing what is true inside them in ways in the world that for others may even seem quite garish. Mm-hmm. But over time, you're like, oh, wait, actually, that's really quite beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I think trans people are really quite beautiful and, and so, so deeply courageous. And so really the the path for me is about your expression of the unique individuation of the divine that you are. And all the effort that you put into knowing and expressing that, mm-hmm. I deeply believe pays off not just for you, but in these beautiful ripple effects through the world. Mm. Eamon Armstrong, I feel that's a great place to end. It does feel like a nice place to end. This was good. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's Mythic Masculine podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, and leave a comment. And if you'd like to support future episodes, head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash ianmack. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash i-a-n-m-a-c-k to become an ongoing funder. Thank you.